Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast, an extension of doodlekisses.com. I'm your host, Adina Pearson. Doodlekisses.com is the social network for Labradoodle and Golden Doodle owners, wannabe owners, and the doodle curious. The goal of this podcast is to provide education, entertainment, and connect with our Doodle Kisses members on the topic of Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, and dogs in general. One of the breeds at highest risk for developing cancer is the wonderful and popular Golden Retriever. About 60% of all Golden Retrievers will die from cancer. Why is this relevant to Doodle owners? Well, whatever is common in a Golden Retriever can be an issue for a Golden Doodle. Sadly, a number of our Doodle Kisses members have lost Golden Doodles to cancer. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Kelly Deal, Senior Director of Science and Communication for the Morris Animal Foundation, which is the organization currently conducting the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study. The Golden Retriever Lifetime Study is a $32 million study an amazing comprehensive study of golden retrievers through their lifetime. This study is collecting a huge amount of data on golden retrievers, such as spay-neuter ages, where they swim, even the water temperature that's typical for where your dog swims, how the dog was obtained, whether that's from a breeder or rescue. They check on the various health conditions the dogs have developed at different ages. They check pedigrees. They collect data on any exposure to certain environments or chemicals, and a ton more. This information collected will hopefully provide a ton of clues into cancer and other health issues that are common to golden retrievers, and hopefully some of that will be important for other breeds as well. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast. Hey, Adina. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm so excited to have you here because I've heard nothing but good things about Morris Animal Foundation. Tell me a little bit about your personal history with dogs. Sure. So I uh, grew up in New Jersey and I grew up in a very small household. So we did not have dogs in our house when I was a kid, but my grandmother had a great miniature schnauzer named Panda, and she adopted Panda when I was three years old. So I basically grew up with Panda, who was the most wonderful, just a wonderful, wonderful dog who would put up with, you know, having to wear baby clothes <laughs> and do uh, this game we like to play called uh, Dog Show, where we would treat, you know, train her to do <laughs> To do things. So she was a, a wonderful, wonderful um, little dog. And so I grew up with Panda. And then I got my first dog that was my son, my own dog. Like so many people, when I went to veterinary school, we had two, we had a parvo puppy, a puppy dropped off. Uh -huh. The puppy was actually found by one of my classmates and was clearly very sick. And so we took care of this little dog as a good Samaritan case. And I was responsible for a lot of this dog's care and I just fell in love with her. And that was my first, you know, adult owned dog named Osti. And Osti was a mix 
I don't, I don't know what she was, <laughs> but she was a great, um, a, I could not ask for a better dog. She was a wonderful, wonderful dog. And um, she sadly passed away not long after I moved out to Colorado and she actually stayed, was staying with my parents and she was especially close to my grandfather. Um, so she was uh, hanging out with them and then um, passed away before I could move her out here. And then I was dogless for a while. And then I got a, um, another dog, my, I guess my second adult dog, which was uh, Denali. And she was a yellow lab. And I got her with a dermatologist I was working with at the time in my practice. And we had, so we had the two sisters. And then after Denali passed, it took a little time, I think, till we were ready for another dog. And I got Emily from actually the same breeder. And she is a wonderful dog as well. And a little bit more high energy than Denali and uh, Osti were. So she's a little bit different personality, like all dogs. But that's really my history with dogs. As far as your question about becoming a veterinarian, I was one of those kids who from a very early age was quite adamant that was what I was going to be. Mm -hmm. And I um, was just nuts about animals in general. And we had all kinds of small pets when I was a kid from turtles to fish, to cats, to a crayfish one time, to gerbils, to mice. I mean, you name it, I had it as a kid. And we, you know, I, I was lucky enough to get into vet, veterinary school, went and um, decided to become a small animal internal medicine specialist. So that takes a couple of extra years of training and went ahead and did that, came out to Colorado here when to do my residency and like so many people loved it and stayed. And after several years in practice, I had my own, I was a co-owner of a very, very large referral practice here in Denver. And after doing that for, oh, I think I was in practice about 25 years, I decided to, I don't want to say retire because I don't feel that old, but <laughs> I, uh, um, I decided to pre-retire and changed gears and went into more communication and ended up at Morris Animal Foundation because I knew the organization for a long time. I had actually donated to it. You know, you can donate, uh, make a donation in a, a deceased pet's name. And so when one of my patients would die, I often gave, uh, donated to Morris Animal Foundation. And then I also had a grant from the foundation to do some research in practice so again, I was very, very familiar with Morris, and I ended up finding this job as a commu in communication here because I happened to be talking to someone because I would published a paper from the grant that I received from Morris Animal Foundation, and they were looking for a contract writer, and that's how I started at Morris. And then, you know, over the years, I've been here a little over six years now in some capacity, and now I work full time for them. Oh, awesome. Now, the reason I reached out to Kelly initially, not knowing anything about her, was because I keep hearing this rumor that somehow English Goldens or European Goldens or 
Golden's not bred here in the U.S. have a lower cancer rate than American Golden's. And so I was reaching out to the organizations that I thought might know to find out more. And then I thought, hey, I'll have Kelly on the podcast. <laughs> um, and the reason I, I want to know about Golden's, other than, you know, it's interesting in science and I like dogs, is because um, our doodle social network includes Golden Doodles. So, you know, the... One of the most popular types of doodles is golden doodles, and that's a golden retriever mixed with a poodle. So if a golden has a condition, then a golden doodle is just as likely to have that condition passed on to it. So I'm very curious about cancer in dogs in general, but especially in golden retrievers. And I think what you told me, Kelly, is that there's not a whole lot of solid data about goldens from Europe versus goldens bred here? Right. And that's a very good question because you are not the only person to bring that up. And as you know, the Morris Animal Foundation several years ago started um, the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study, which is this longitudinal study where we have enrolled 3,044 golden retrievers and we're following them through their lives. And it's an observational study, which means we don't intervene, right, in any mm -hmm. way. They kind of live their life as wherever they are, and they report their all kinds of data to us, everything from their exercise, where they live, the environment they live in, how much they travel, what kind of medications they receive, what kind of diseases they develop. And the idea, the underpinning idea is to, it's a cancer risk study. Because as you mentioned, golden retrievers have a high risk of developing cancer, particularly in the United States. We like to throw out the 60% of them will have cancer in their lifetime. But we also know cancer is a, you know, probably the major cause of disease-related death, right, in older dogs. So there's quite a bit of um, interest in knowing about it. And of course, there's interest in people. These dogs share our environment. They spend a lot of time with us. And therefore, could they tell us something about cancer that could inform people as well? So we embarked on this study to try to answer some of these questions. And we're looking at everything, including we collect blood samples, urine, and feces from these dogs every year, even if they're perfectly healthy. Mm -hmm. We collect tumor samples from them if they develop cancer. And we will often collect other things like blood, right? The same sort of samples when they develop cancer. We obviously have lots and lots of data on, on where they reside. And we're following them to try to see if we can connect some dots between their environment. We also have their genetics. The, um, as you know, technology to look at the genes and the DNA in dogs and people is getting less and less expensive all the time. So we were able to isolate DNA from all these dogs. So we have um, you know, the ability to genetically look at them right? And try to see, is there a genetic composition that makes them more likely to develop cancer and whether that is something that might be seen in dogs in other countries or not, we'll 
learn more about that. But it could be, again, a combination between genetics and where you live or genetics and what you eat or genetics. And you know what I mean? It's probably, I think our sense is it's going to be more complicated than just don't do this. You know what I mean? And, and everybody will live a long and a cancer-free life. I think there's probably going to be um, different risk factors found. Yeah. Um, just the fact that it's such a, what is it? 60%? In yes, it's yeah. huge in golden. Just the fact that it's so high it has to speak to genetics, you know, tremendously. <laughs> I've been having a lot of fun doing these podcasts, interviewing interesting people, learning along with you. I don't really want to stop. However, producing a podcast takes time and money. I'm willing to put in the time, but I don't have podcast production skills. And so we have to pay for a professional to put these podcasts together. This is where you come in. If you're getting anything out of listening to these podcasts, please consider supporting the Doodle Kisses podcast. If every single person who listened to at least one episode gave $1, we could cover the production of several episodes. If you gave $5, well, we'd be done fundraising for the year. Go check out our GoFundMe page. The link is in our show notes. Now back to the learning. Any new data that's coming in that's interesting that, you know, is pointing to even not conclusively maybe, but, you know, like to any particular environmental or specific aspects of golden retrievers or types that have more or less right not yet but we are um we have some partners who are very very interested in looking at actually doing the sequencing on these dogs which means looking at the whole dna composition right their mm -hmm. entire genetic makeup uh it's a big undertaking because as you know we have millions billions of um little pieces of dna you know right. components to our dna and it requires, uh, we're lucky because it really required technology to be able to do that. Both computers, powerful enough and fast enough to be able to compare, right? Millions and millions and millions of little pieces of data. And also the ability to do it inexpensively to actually sequence these dogs. And uh, so we have some partners that are going to do that. So we're very excited about that. That's the first step, which is actually getting the DNA. The second step is then looking at these, these, um, you know, these sequences and then comparing them to the environmental. We are just entering, our average dog age is about seven years of age. So we are just entering, unfortunately, a time where we're seeing lots and lots and lots of cancer developing mm -hmm. in our cohort. I would say we get at least one or two dogs a week that are diagnosed with cancer now. That's happened probably in the last year. So making, we can make a lot of assumptions before now because we just didn't have enough cancer deaths, right, which is right. good because these dogs were young. We're not hoping that that will happen, but we need 500 diagnoses. That doesn't mean death, but we have to have 500 dogs diagnosed with these um, cancers, the most malignant cancers that we're interested in, which is hemangiosarcoma, lymphoma, osteosarcoma, and high-grade mast cell tumor. And once we reach 500 diagnoses, which we're not there yet, we're about, about 100 and about 100, I would say, mm -hmm. of um, diagnoses, we can actually, we have the statistical power at that point to make associations. 
Before that, with these lower numbers, we can't say statistically anything, right? Okay. We need to have yeah. enough dogs to get enough cancer to be able to say anything. So we, the only thing we've started doing as far as looking at data is in the young, like young dog diseases, uh -huh. right? Or young dog problems. And the biggest paper to come out so far is really looking at timing of spaying and neutering and the development of obesity or ligament injury, what we call non-traumatic orthopedic problems, right? So developmental problems or uh, in the cohort to see if there's a link between the timing of spaying. But we are, unfortunately, especially with hemandrosarcoma and lymphoma, those seem to be very, very prevalent. I think people listening who have Goldens know that they're very common cancers. They're devastating cancers for Goldens. And we are seeing a lot of those. And I think within the next, our projections are within the next probably two or three years, we'll have our 500 diagnoses if we continue at the rate that we're currently going. But until we get there, we haven't really looked at any anything specific yet as far as cancer. Yeah, it's kind of a, a, a tough thing to want, right? We want to get the numbers <laughs> and get it's kind of sad that the numbers are going to come. In as far as from what researcher knowledge so far, is there a gender difference in cancer rates with Goldens or in dogs in general? Have you That's actually, yeah, a good question because it's controversial because mm -hmm. there are different studies published that talk a little bit about, and it bears into spay neuter, the influence of hormone what we call hormone dose now, right? How long uh -huh. does a female have exposure to estrogen levels or a male to testosterone levels? Because there are conflicting results on whether, you know, the presence or absence of hormones affects cancer rates. I think it's really obvious for people that if you spay a dog, they're not, they're much less likely to get mammary cancers, right? right. That's yeah. um, something that people have known for a long time and uh, was used as a rationale for spaying dogs at certain ages. Unfortunately, there's some conflicting data that suggests, well, maybe having some estrogen around for a while will protect you from other cancers, right? And that's not been always, you know, there are studies that show different things. And that is one thing we are very, very anxious see because we're following things so carefully and we're following it prospectively versus looking backwards. Sometimes mm -hmm. when you look backwards, you can have skewing of your population because when you do a retrospective look at, well, okay, well get me all the lymphoma cases and see when they were spayed or whatever. Or yeah. And sometimes that can be, you can introduce bias that you don't mean to, but if you're following it prospectively, you're less likely to introduce that kind of bias. And we have very, very, very precise dates on when dogs were neutered or not neutered or how long were they intact before they were neutered. You know what I mean? We have this whole That's different true. age range. So much nuance there, you know, between the dogs who were spayed as young puppies versus, you know, at six months versus waiting to have a heat or going, you know, finishing their growth. I can see how that could be very complicating. <laughs> right, right. And um, so that's something that we're really, really interested in. We have not seen a lot of mammary cancer, I can say that, in our cohort at all, um, even though we have some intact female dogs, because a lot of the folks who signed up are um, people who breed dogs, 
uh, golden retrievers. They're intensely interested, as you can imagine, yeah. in improving the breed. And so that's really a big bonus for us to be able to have dogs that were spayed or neutered at different times, some that stayed intact for a long period of time, some that had multiple litters of puppies. So uh, we're, we're very lucky and um, we're following that right now, but we seem to be seeing plenty of lymphoma and hemangiosarcoma, which is not a surprise as dogs age into middle age. Yeah. It'd be interesting too. And I don't know if that's one of the data points to know like activity level of the dog, you know, if it's a dog that kind of lays around the house all day versus one that goes on lots of walks or is competing in agility or whatever. Right. And we have all that information, actually. Uh, We have a pretty detailed exercise section, including, you know, does your dog swim? Where does your dog swim? Mm. And even the temperature of the water that they swim in, um, because that's thought to influence metabolic rate Uh and how much energy you expend if you swim in cold water versus warm water. And is it the ocean or is it the pond near your house? Or So we're trying to be that precise in our collection of data. That's amazing. Can you, from the data that you collect, is there anything that pinpoints where the dog, how the dog was obtained? Like if it was a rescue dog or if it was from a show breeder versus, I don't know, just someone's friend that bred the dog. Is there any of that available? Yes, we have all of that. And in fact, for enrollment, dogs had to have a better have to had to uh, present their pedigree for several generations past. Oh, that's awesome. Right. So we have all kinds. We have some people who have dogs that like um, puppies from same litters, which is really helpful. It's like twin studies, right? In people where you can have dogs from the same litter often exposed to different environments. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of siblings. We don't have, I don't think any, um, you know, because it wouldn't work easily with parents and, and children, you know, um, when we, when we enrolled. Um, But yes, to your point about the the genetics, we did have people tell us where they got them, but they just had to be able, even if you got it from your friend or Uh your neighbor, you still had to have the pedigree available. So somehow they had to have papers. Yes. One way or the other. That's helpful. That would be really interesting to see if there was any connection to certain lines. Right. Well, and that's um, actually a good question because that was something that we will probably not, we're not going to do. Mm. Um, you know, that was a concern with some of the owners is pointing fingers at people and um, looking at saying, well, this line is problematic. We actually don't need to do that because we'll have the genetics, which will be independent oh, okay. of that. And people, researchers will have access to the genetics and information about the dog, but they don't have we don't personalize anything. Uh-huh. And I think that that's probably important for folks to know. The hope would be you might be able to develop genetic tests that readers can then use, mm-hmm. right? And say, hey, you know what? We found a link to this particular gene and you might want to look for it in um, your, your lines in particular. So that is something that we will never, and we don't really want to know. We try mm-hmm. to anonymize things as much as possible. So I think we will never point to a line or like a sire or a dam, but we will be able to learn more about the genetics in general and look for risk, like risk genes, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Just like if you have the BRAC1 gene and you're a female, you're going to watch yourself for breast cancer differently than a person who didn't have that gene, right? Mm-hmm. 
And that's what I think we're hoping to accomplish is can we develop a pinpoint genetic so that we can develop genetic testing or get an idea if you have this gene and you live in this environment, that could be a risk, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you spay or neuter early, maybe that is a risk factor. Um, I think there's going to be a sweet spot there that we will identify on when is maybe the best time for spaying and neutering. But those are all the questions we're getting ready to try to answer. That would That's going to be amazing when that study is complete. I, I'm so looking forward to the data between, between potentially identifying a gene risk factor and even you know, the spay-neuter thing. That would be really cool. Right. And um, we're hopeful, you know, we're still probably, you know, it's a 14 year study and we're in our eighth year now. So theoretically we're eight, we're halfway through. Mm -hmm. Um, But the data, we're going to have more than 5 million data points by the time everything's done. And so I think this is going to power research for a long time after we are all done collecting, there will be I there and there is a growing interest in the research community to have access to our data and our samples. Yeah, absolutely. Now, is the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study only focused on cancer, or are they hoping to learn other things like spay neuter as far as its effect on bone health or joint issues? Yeah, for sure. And so we're collecting all that data. And in fact, that first paper was looking specifically at timing of spay-neuter and um, non-traumatic injury. So you're right. We're not collecting just like, hey, just tell us if you have cancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right now, um, and Golden Retriever owners will not be surprised about this, our number one diagnosis is actually outer ear infections. Oh, really? Um, (laughs) That seems to be one of the most common things that we see, but we track everything. So even something like that, even clinical signs, uh, such as, uh, vomiting, you uh-huh. know, we have people report that even if it's independent of uh, a particular disease. So we capture all of that data because you don't know what might be interesting down the line and, and also to identify other diseases that afflict goldens. Yeah. Like epilepsy. Yes, like epilepsy. We have several dogs who developed epilepsy as young dogs, mm-hmm. and we know who they are. And we're um, that will be something that, again, will be available uh, to the research community. If we have somebody out there who's interested in epilepsy and Goldens, they can come to us and say, can you pull this data for us and can we get some samples from you? Yeah, so we're just starting to really advertise that to folks. I love it. This is so cool. And so you have eight more years, is that right? Is that what you said? Or you're eight years in? Yeah, we're both. We're about halfway. Um, So we have seven, eight more years ahead of us in the original projections to Mm -hmm. kind of get get us as far along as we can. You know, it's a $32 million study. So it is a enormous lift uh, for the foundation. We have some corporate partners, but the vast, vast majority of money comes from individuals Mm -hmm. who donate to us. And, uh, you know, we have long-term, we're going to be storing these samples for a long time and that's going to cost some money. So right now we're, we're, you know, deep into it. And, um, but we're, you know, following out as long as we can with these dogs. I think the idea was that most of them would have passed after 14 you know, 14 years, we may have a few outliers mm-hmm. uh, at that point, but um, that's our that's our projection right now. And again, we're 
astonished to be halfway through, but we're about halfway through. That's awesome. And how can people donate to the study directly? Um, if you go to morrisanimalfoundation.org, which is our website, there are, are ways to donate and you can donate directly to the study. You can also donate um, money for the study comes out of our general fund too. So sometimes okay. it's, we always tell people, you know, if you donate to the general fund, it goes to help fund the study. You know, we do a lot of other research on for dogs of all stripes <laughs> and all different problems. So we have a lot. And of course we do cats, we do horses and alpacas as well as wildlife. So we have a pretty broad portfolio of different studies that we fund. That the Morris Animal Foundation funds? Yes. Now, other than funding studies, what else is a goal or a mission of the, or is that the main mission of Morris Animal Foundation? Yeah, that's actually the main mission. Um, it started as a way for veterinary researchers to get funding for animal problems. Um, our founder was a veterinarian. He was one of the first people to have a small animal only practice in the 1920s when he founded his practice, because as you can imagine before then, most people, it was uh, veterinary medicine was centered around farm animals and horses and not so much, you know, dogs and cats. And he um, pioneered the small animal practice we all know today. He was also one of the first people to ever just do blood work on dogs and cats, you know, uh -huh. to look for disease. And so he set up the foundation, um, Mark Moore Sr., to address, um, he felt that there was not enough research done to benefit animals directly. And so our first grants were dog and cat grants, and then we moved into equine in 1960 and wildlife in 1967. So yes, we are primarily a granting agency. The Golden Retriever Lifetime Study is a little different for us because yes, we're funding it, but we're also running it and managing it. Mm -hmm. But typically, we get we have grant proposals that come into us from all over the world. We fund globally. And we, you know, evaluate those grants and then give um, those grants out. So I was a grant recipient in private practice. Typically, most of our grants go to veterinarians based at universities. But we've also, we have a study, for example, right now that we're working with the San Diego Zoo on. We've funded um, Smithsonian. Uh, so we, you know, there are other, other, um, granting agencies that we work with or agent or, um, rescues we've funded as well, but it's all focused on animal, you know, improving animal health. That's wonderful. Is there anything else that you think, um, listeners would want to hear or learn about either of the Morris Animal Foundation or the Golden Retriever Lifetime, Lifetime Study? Well, I would definitely um, encourage people to take a look at our website because some of the we have more detailed information about the studies. We have some of the papers that we've that have come out of both of the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study are posted there, and many of them are very readable. We have links to oh, we have webinars and we have podcasts, and so we have some. Um, uh, digital materials as well. We have a Facebook page, we have a Twitter, you know, so there's a whole bunch of different ways to follow us. Uh, LinkedIn. So we're, we're all over the place and we're trying to, you know, our, our goal is to let people know the scope 
and depth of what we do. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Kelly, for being here today. I enjoyed learning about this and I'm excited and I hope our listeners will consider donating. And if they have a golden, well, I guess they had to have enrolled already, right? Is it kind of like Correct, but you can follow along. And we have a lot of folks who are uh, fall into what we call our supporter category. Uh And they're just people who are passionate about Goldens. Maybe they have a friend in the study and they they participate as well and follow. And they're they're a great help for us um, as well. So you can even be a supporter of the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study. And I know for dog owners, um, I want to say that we talk a lot about Goldens, but our hope is that the, what we find will have broad applicability again to other dog breeds. Yeah, absolutely. This is wonderful. I love what you're doing and I wish you the best of luck in, in getting good data that can be useful. Oh, we're we're really, really excited about it. Again, it was a lot of collection and now that we've got you know seven years under our belt, we're starting to really dig into what we've been collecting for seven years and and seeing what we can find. So I really appreciate you having me on the podcast so I can tell about this. This is just a super exciting study. It's never really been done in veterinary medicine before. There are other studies now that have come after us, but we were one of the first to really of this scope anywhere in the world. Yeah, that's wonderful. I know we have a number of members on our site who have dogs that they've lost to various cancers. They're golden doodles, so half golden, and some that have new diagnoses. And I think knowing that this is happening is going to feel good that, you know, people are doing something about this and finding, finding hope, looking for hope. So thank you, Kelly, for being here. Oh, you're welcome, Adina. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast. If you have any ideas or recommendations for future topics or guests, send me an email at admin at doodlekisses.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at doodlekisses.com. Also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts so you can have every episode ready to listen to as soon as it comes out. The show notes will link you to our GoFundMe page as well as links to some of the things we discussed in today's episode. Talk to you next time on the next episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast.